This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Today, we're going to be talking about some difficult things. So I want to give you a content warning that we are going to be talking about uh, sexual violence, racism, white supremacy, misogyny, um, and other structural oppressions and structural violence. So if you need to step out, please do take care of yourself, okay? And take care of those around you. So here's our agenda for today. Um, we are going to learn about the criminalization of uh, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. We're going to learn about the importance of building community with incarcerated people through correspondence, whether that's email or actual cards or letters. And then we're going to do some action. We're going to write to incarcerated survivors. And we know that socialism is an interactive conference. So throughout the entire presentation, we're going to be trying to engage you um, in the uh, in some talk, we're going to ask you questions. We'd love to hear from people in the audience. We're going to ask you to write a card or two if you're able to to some of our friends who are on the inside. We're going to ask you some more questions because again, we want to hear from you. And then at the end, we'll have uh, more uh, more of a discussion. So who are we? God. So my name is Dina Lewis. I use she, her pronouns. I'm with Survived and Punished. Survived and Punished is a national organization with multiple affiliates across the US. And we focus on supporting defense campaigns, uplifting stories of criminalized survivors, developing policy and toolkits to help people support criminalized survivors, and disseminating information about criminalized survivors. You're like, well, what the hell is a criminalized survivor? You keep saying that. It's a good thing you asked. So here's how Survived and Punished defines um, criminalized survivors. So people, uh, people, survivors of domestic and sexual violence and other forms of gender violence who are imprisoned for survival actions. And those survivals, survival actions include self-defense, failure to protect, migration, removing children from abusive people, being coerced into acting as a quote-unquote accomplice, and securing resources needed to, to live. We're not going to go into uh, what failure to protect means, but it's related to uh, parents, hello, joining the panel. Um, that's what Maya did. <laughs> um, just realized it. Um, failure to protect is related to caregivers who, um, who have children who end up um, being harmed while uh, supposedly being in their care. Um, and regardless of faults, those people are, um, are then uh, criminalized for, for that harm. Um, I also want to say that 
we have uh, an idea of what a quote-unquote victim looks like, um, and it's you know, popularized in so many different places and what we read, what we see. And the folks that we are supporting are not those perfect victims. Okay. Um, so we're supporting people who are um, often already criminalized and not recognized as people who are in need of support and advocacy. So people can be criminalized for being black, undocumented, poor, transgender, queer, disabled, for being a woman or girl of color, for being in the sex industry, or having past quote-unquote criminal records. So their experiences of violence are then diminished because of that criminalization. Those experiences are distorted and often disappeared. And so instead of being able to defend themselves, those folks are then simply seen as criminals who should be punished and punished punitively. And so uh, the folks that we support often face hostility from police, prosecutors, judges, families, just overall community. And they're often denied the support and advocacy that quote-unquote good victims receive from anti-violence advocates. So the folks we talk, we're talking about and that we work with and that we support and who are part of our families and are part of our, um, our friend groups um, are those folks who are particularly vulnerable when racist pro-criminalization po uh, policies, such as mandatory minimums, the war on drugs, quote-unquote fel felons not families, deportation enforcement, and increased police authority are waged in our communities. So I'm going to pass it over to Santera to introduce themselves. <laughs> Free Crystal, I'll leave this up here. No, I'm not going to take it with me. Okay, hi everyone. My name is Santara. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm an organizer with the Free Crystal Kaiser Defense Campaign. And our committee was born in uh, the year of 2017 when we began supporting a criminalized survivor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, Crystal was just a teenager when she fought back against the person who was causing her immense harm. Um, and she said, Hey, I'm down to fight this. It's wrong that I'm. Um, I, she was facing like homicide charges essentially still is um, and she's like this is wrong who wants to help um, and so we answer the call um, and we are based in Milwaukee Wisconsin thanks yeah sure. I'm a little shorter than Dina <laughs> <laughs> hi everyone uh, my name is Chez Rump I use she her pronouns um, and I'm here with love and protect um, I want to shout out Maya Shanwar and Sarah Jane Rhee who are also love and protect members um, we'll be helping out later so thank you um, and it's just really nice to see so many people in this room, so thanks for coming uh, to this session. Um, and there's people here that I know are doing this work, and so we're excited to get to the discussion like Dina was talking about too, because um, there's a lot of expertise and energy in this room, so really anxious to get to that part. Um, but very quickly, I'll just tell you, um, Love and Protect, before I go here, I just want to say um, we're also part of the Survive and Punish Network, and we started out as the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander. Um, and once that campaign successfully came to a close, we basically realized that there were so many more Marissas um, and that the work wasn't done. And so we transitioned into what we now call Love and Protect. And we're a volunteer collective in Chicago that provides direct support to women and gender nonconforming people of color who have been criminalized for self-defense. Um, and we work to raise awareness about this issue. 
Um, and explicitly, as Dina and Santero both mentioned, we also work within a prison abolitionist framework. And so we are recognizing that the state in its many forms, policing courts, prisons, public age, health protective services, ICE, et cetera, um, are main perpetrators in the lives um, of marginalized people and marginalized communities. So with that, um, as Dina mentioned, we really do want to make this as interactive as possible. My task here is to um, introduce us to thinking about and talking about the concept of gender-based violence um, and domestic violence. And so admittedly, this is a much too short <laughs> intro, uh, but we want to at least get started together. And so I just want to invite you to reflect on these three questions. And if there is anyone that feels comfortable enough um, and could come to the microphone, we've been asked to use the mics. Um, and if you do speak up, to so please use your name and your pronouns if you're comfortable. Um, but we wanted to start thinking about how do you define domestic violence or sexual violence? Or what are um, some of the things you have heard about this type of violence? Um, or kind of thinking about Dina's earlier comments with the quote-unquote perfect victims. Um, what are some of the popular narratives or examples of domestic violence you've seen um, in television programming, movies, popular culture, etc.? Um, so I'll give us some, uh, maybe 30 seconds to reflect, but if anyone wants to share out, we have time for maybe one, two, three max. Um, hello, my name is Michelle, uh, she, her pronouns, and um, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but I would think that um, violence uh, necessitates non-consent. So whether that's um, like verbalized or not, uh, I think that's important. Yeah, such an important word. Um, and it speaks to really these dynamics of power and control that are at the center of abusive relationships, but also at the center of so many of our systems, right? And um, when someone is in that power position, right, when someone has that control, um, it's non-consensual, right? It's not like someone is agreeing to this violence that's happening. Um, so thank you so much to both of you for being willing to address those two really important points. Um, so just kind of sharing a bit about our framework, we'll go to the next slide here, um, in, in the way that Love and Protect and Survive and Punish and Free Crystal Kaiser, um, we, we think about gender-based violence as existing on a continuum of gender-based violence. And I just have to acknowledge that there are people in the room that have written extensively about this, you know, whose work we are using and building upon. Um, and then also specifically, uh, black feminists have been writing for decades, even longer, um, about these issues and about the need to understand how gender-based violence that occurs in intimate households um, is connected to gender-based violence that occurs in our communities and in our institutions. And it's connected to um, our social structures, right? The gender-based violence, um, patriarchy, sexism, this is an organizing principle that exists throughout our society. Um, and so we can't just look at violence that's happening in the home or between two people without also understanding how gender-based violence is structuring our entire world. Um, and so that's the position, the framework that we're coming from. Um, when we talk about gender-based violence, we are talking about this continuum. And what we've laid out here is specifically drawing from the work of Beth Ritchie. Um, specifically her book Arrested Justice and this model of the violence matrix that she puts forth and is a very useful tool. Um, so when we think about interpersonal violence, 
uh, that's often what we see portrayed in pop culture, right? That's often the, the idea of, oh, there's this quote-unquote perfect victim um, who's experiencing physical, emotional, sexual violence, um, stalking. We tend to think about it as being violence that's happening between two people or that's happening within a family or within a housing situation. Um, and we know, as the last person was saying, that this is about power and control. We're talking about these patterns of behavior that are used uh, to establish dominance within the relationship. Right, so we're not talking about a fight that happens. Right, we're not talking about some one-off disagreement. We're talking about these systematic behaviors that establish and maintain um, exploitive and violent and dominant dynamics in the relationship. Um, and we know, as we've said already multiple times, um, that there is increased vulnerability based on race, gender, ability or disability, socioeconomic status, immigrant status, um, sexuality, right? whether it's if someone recognizes a person as being capable of being a victim, um, whether someone has access to resources to try to keep themselves safe, to try to create distance or get the things that they need to try to keep themselves and their families safe, um, that these are all connected. right? So the main point here is that these intersecting systems of oppression create the very conditions of, for vulnerability and exploitation, um, those conditions for the abuse of power that exist in our intimate lives and in our intimate spaces. So we really want to think about how these different kind of levels of violence or contexts of violence are related. Um, also thinking about community violence, um, which we know, just like interpersonal violence, is also pervasive and deadly. Um, and we know that there are particular types of people who are vulnerable to particular types of violence happening in our communities and public spaces. Um, and so in particular, we want to talk about sexual harassment and sexual assault, because that's often left out of popular narratives when we're talking about quote unquote community violence. And so I want to give a shout out to youth groups here in Chicago. Um, some no longer exist, but are still their legacy you know, still shapes our work but groups like the Young Women's Action Team, the Young Women's Empowerment Project, and A Long Walk Home um, that have really been at the forefront of naming and making visible and centering these types of gendered violence in our discussions of community violence. Right? So how do we make our communities safe for women, trans, gender nonconforming youth of color? Right? And that if we're asking that question, if we're centering people in that way, then we have to be engaging violence like sexual harassment and sexual assault, um, in addition to the other types of violence we tend to talk about um, or that gets more of the, the media attention. And then the third piece here about state violence, we've talked a bit about this already, um, but again, we also know that state violence is pervasive and deadly, just like community violence, just like interpersonal violence. And as I've said, state violence creates these conditions for community and interpersonal gender-based violence. Um, so whether we're talking about a politics of divestment and social policies that remove and extract resources from communities, um, that remove bodily autonomy, um, that's increasing vulnerability, that increases the conditions for exploitation. Um, and we also know, um, as Andrea Ritchie has written extensively in the book Invisible No More, um, that people who are working in these systems of surveillance and punishment often are perpetrating violence against the most marginalized members of our society. So whether we're looking at police, correctional officers, um, social service workers, ICE agents, um, we know that those very agents of the state are perpetuating um, some of this really horrific gender-based violence that people are already surviving in their intimate uh, relationships and then within their communities. Um, and the, 
I won't say too much about this, but the next slide here um, is more of an advertisement almost for um, a workshop that Dina and I will be doing tomorrow um, with our good friend Monica Cosby. Um, but this graphic was created by Monica um, along with Sarah Ross, who's an incredible um, scholar, artist, and activist, um, and founder of PNAP, the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. Um, but what this does is it really nicely lays out the ways that state violence mirrors the very dynamics of power and control that exist within intimate partner violence or intimate relationships. And I think one of the many things that's so brilliant about this graphic is it shows us how we're talking about the same type of violence. It's just a different context. And the very routine ways that the prison works, it is operating in the exact same ways that abusive partners operate in relationships. And so then we need to start thinking about what does it mean that the vast majority, upwards of 90% of people incarcerated in women's prisons are survivors of some type of gender-based violence and then we are um, putting them into these uh, physical environments where they then routinely are subjected to the very dynamics that they have just fought for their lives to survive. And I think with that, I'll pass it off to Santara. Okay, thank you. So now I will just talk a little bit, like really briefly about the history of defense campaigns. As we all know, as long as people are being oppressed and harmed, people are fighting back. So as soon as the violence happened, that's how long we've been fighting back against it. But we know that in this country, that defense campaigns have been really crucial, like more popularly um, for over the last um, century. And so then following, um, yeah, so they've been crucial to social movements in the U.S. for more than a century, and they're commonly used to help resist um, governmental and re governmental repression against radical and progressive movements. Um, during the lack, long black freedom struggle in the 19th in the 20th century, activists also campaigned for people facing life imprisonment as well as the death penalty for things they didn't do or self-defense. And so I have an image here of our rally outside of the Joan Little trial. And so that was a, a trial that happened in the 1970s that really showed what local building local to national power could do. Um, there was a defense committee in North Carolina at the time where they were able to really build with more national and even more funded um, gender-based violence organizations and then organizations, period, to really tell the narrative that Joan Little, who was 20 at the time of surviving an attack, Joan Little, as I'm sure many know, was incarcerated when she was attacked um, by a white guard. And she acted in self-defense and was able to escape this abuse. And through lots of organizing, through storytelling, fundraising, building connections across the country, um, she was actually able to be um, acquitted. So that's that um, really showed what could be done when we're building together. Um, so defense campaigns include storytelling, narrative building, fundraising, media making, all making sure that we're connecting not like individual cases to broader ones. A really important piece of defense campaigns is saying like going past the exceptional rule saying free this person and not that. It's they're really a huge part of the organizing is saying, actually, all of this is wrong. Let's highlight the story. Let's come around this person so that we can just really talk about how all of this is wrong. And so that's how defense committees are a tool. All right. So I will talk a little bit about Crystal. Crystal was 17, as I mentioned before, when she acted in self-defense against a much older white man who had been abusing her for years. Um, 
law enforcement. This happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is just a small area, just a little bit outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, law enforcement knew that this man had been harming not only Crystal, but other black girls in the neighborhood. They had videos of all of the abuse um, that was happening, and they did nothing. So Crystal had to act in self-defense in order to save her own self. Um, and so then, as I mentioned before, that is how she ended up being she ended up um, fighting back and then now is criminalized. Through the black, the, the uprisings of summer 2020, um, lots of organizations were pouring money and resources into bond funds, bail funds, and just different movement spaces. So the Chicago Community Bond Fund, along with the Milwaukee Freedom Fund, Survived and Punished, were able to pool resources and actually bond Crystal out of jail, out of pretrial incarceration, and her bond was set at $400,000. The judge, the DA, all was fine with that because they thought that she wouldn't ever be able to actually meet that, but then we proved them wrong. So she has been out now um, for about two years. Her case, as I mentioned, is pretrial. The Kenosha DA has the power to drop all charges, so that's what we're currently working on. Um, we're trying to support Crystal, rally around her, let her know, like, we we're with you, um, we want this to go away. And that's that's what our campaign's working on. Oh, nice. So I have the honor of talking about Bernina Mata today. Uh, Bernina is a person who is currently serving life in prison, in prison at Logan Correctional Center. Um, don't be fooled by the term center, it's a prison. Um, unless we're saying that it's the center of and for carcerality, which it is one of them. So who, who is Bernina? Bernina is a Latinx lesbian and an avid reader. And some folks here might identify as such, which is great. You might share those identities or you have different intersections and celebrate different identities. So hold that thought until the next slide. Why am I talking about Bernina? Bernina has been in prison since 1998 for defending herself against a potential rape. As a survivor of childhood sexual assault, Bernina sought to defend herself as she is, as she and all of us um, should be able to do. She unfortunately killed her attacker and Bernina was arrested and went to trial. At Bernina's trial, the prosecution leveled a deeply racist and homophobic argument to sway the court to see Bernina not as a human, not as a person who was defending themselves against an attack, but a stereotype, an archetype of uh, their imaginations. So what did they say? Well, I said, they meaning the prosecution pointed out that as a Latinx woman, she was fiery. She had a hot temper. The implication they were trying to get across was that she was prone to kill. To continue to bolster the prosecution's case, Bernina was described as a, quote, hardcore lesbian, unquote, man-hating, and as the prosecutor said, quote, uh, a normal heterosexual person would not have engaged in such violence. A normal heterosexual person. In addition, the prosecution pointed to two books on her bookshelf to point out what a violent, hardcore lesbian she was. Now, I hope you've been thinking about your own identities throughout the presentation. I want you to think about your bookshelves at home. 
and we are an audience group of people who read. <laughs> to an outside person, to a prosecutor, what do your books say about you? Which isn't an, like, I, keep your books, keep reading, get as many books as you want. Was not trying to say, throw them out, oh my God. Say, get those books. The prosecution's the problem. So even after Bernina's attorneys pointed out the attempted rape and the assault, provided evidence as uh, to show the attempted rape and assault, the court sentenced Bernina to death in 1998. In 2003, her sentence was commuted to life without the possibility of parole, often known as LWAP, due to the death penalty being abolished in Illinois. And yes, Governor Quinn passed, uh, abolished the death penalty, but that was after a lot of organizing, a lot of organizing. So I want you to like hold that too. We're here because we are organizing to support and we're organizing with the people that um, we are, we're talking about today. Um, and that, and I'm sure you all know this, but that politicians don't move without a lot of pressure. And a lot of pressure comes from people like us, people who are in the communities and people who are on the ground organizing against, um, against oppression. But really, who is Bernina? Bernina is a Latinx lesbian who is an avid reader. She's also a dog lover. She loves to garden. She's a chef. She's a caregiver. She's an organizer. She's a learner, educator, change maker. She's a worker. She's a lot of things. Most importantly, Bernita is our friend and family. So Bernina is still currently in Logan fighting for clemency alongside of her team on the outside. And I want to name those folks because again, the organizing people are really important. So attorney Joey Mogul, who is actually here, uh, Debbie Southorn, Olivia Abrecht, Caitlin Donnelly Power, Chris Clutter, Levin Protect's own Bree Haney and Rachel White Domain, who is another attorney with the Illinois Prison Project. So all of those people and many more have been fighting for uh, Bernina's freedom. Um, a few weeks ago, not a few weeks ago, it was in April at this point, it was months. Oh my God, where'd the time go? Um, uh, her team submitted a clemency pe uh, petition. And a clemency petition is Bernina's last chance at freedom. That petition is sitting on Gover Governor Pritzker's desk as we speak. Um, and we're hoping that Governor Pritzker does uh, does the right thing before or before he leaves office. And Governor Pritzker, I'm sorry, Governor of Illinois, Pritzker, um, before he leaves office or stays in office, whatever, we'd like him to just do the right thing. Um, and the clemency we're hoping will um, commute her sentence and set her free and have her come back to the people who want her free and who want her out here. Thank you. So you have heard a little bit about Crystal, you've heard a little bit about Bernina, um, and in a few moments we are going to ask you to join us in writing um, some cards of solidarity uh, to both of them. Um, but before we do this, we want to talk a little bit about why letter writing is so important and why letter writing we believe is a part of abolitionist praxis. 
Um, and so we're going to play a short clip um, from Sherelle Baldwin, who um, was an incarcerated survivor and um, was released because organizing fucking works. <laughs> um, so in this clip, this was at an incredible gathering that happened in 2017 that Survive and Punish put on at the Allied Media Conference. And it was such an incredible moment um, because Marissa Alexander was there and um, Sherelle Baldwin was there and a, a number of other formerly incarcerated survivors were physically able to be in the space um, because they had fought for their lives, first from abusive partners and then from the state, and, and they won. Um, not after losing years of their life, right? After years of incarceration. Um, but it was a really beautiful gathering. And so in this panel, um, the clip we're going to show is Sherelle basically explaining a little bit about her experience, but what letter writing meant to her during the time she had been incarcerated um, and awaiting trial um, for a self-defense case. And everyone cross your fingers that it all So works. yeah, so we're privileged to hear from, from four experts and survivors who are going to um, give us the gift of sharing. I didn't want to go through what I was going through anymore. You do, you do everything you're supposed to. You just, the system just fails you just because you're a female. And I'm a female of color at that, so my attorney told me that. He said, you're a female of color. You're not gonna, they're not gonna treat you any different. So I went to trial in 2015, 2014. I lost my first, well, I didn't lose my first trial. It was 11 to 1, 11 in my favor. But I just felt like giving up because I'm like, who wants to go back to trial again? So at that time, they offered me a plea deal because they knew that this case, they knew that Jeffrey was wrong, but they wanted me to plead out. So I went back to trial March of 2016, and that's when I won my trial. I was acquitted of all charges, and I just couldn't believe it. And the prosecutor, she said it. She, she knew that Jeffrey, the way Jeffrey treated me, she knew everything, but it's just the system. It's just the system is totally against women. And you can't even protect yourself anymore. And I advise women just, if you can just move away or get away from the situation, just get away from it. You don't want to end up like how I ended up. If I could do things over, I would have moved out of the country if I could. My son been through too much. He's only six years old. He's been through too much. And it's just, it's sad. Because you did everything, you took all the right steps, you called the police, you got away from that person. And it's just, what are you supposed to do? Just to keep allowing it to keep happening? They show up at your job, they get you fired from your job, they clear out your bank account. It's just, you know, you don't have nothing left. So how do you survive? Then I started getting all these letters. I seen my mom tell me that I got some letters from people on the outside. And I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> I'm so emotional, I'm always crying. So I'm sitting here on the phone crying. Who are these people telling me that? And she's like, Holly and Stacy, she's naming people. I'm like, who? She's like, they're from Chicago and California. And I'm like, and then I started getting the letters. And I'm like, who are these people writing me? And I'm like, these people don't care about me. And then, you know, you guys actually did care about me. And that's what kept me from committing suicide. Because three years is a long time to be incarcerated and not be with your son. 
he's back and forth between houses, and it's just, you know, if my mom didn't fight for me, I don't know where I would be right now. And you guys fighting for me, oh my goodness. I just think about it every day because I'm like, you know, I've seen the petition when I got out, and I'm like, really? It's people that actually seen my case. You know, you, you think people don't care about you, but people actually do care. People go through similar situations. And you know, I hate that this happened. I hate... So we're going to stop it there for the sake of time, um, but the full video is available um, if you Google Criminalized Survivors Panel, no perfect victims convening, you'd be able to watch the full thing. Um, I wanted to provide a little bit more context about Sherelle. She clearly told a bit about her story in that clip, um, but she was uh, 19 years old and living in Connecticut uh, when she met Jeffrey Brown, um, the person that she was referring to in the video clip. Um, and they began a relationship, uh, Cheryl became pregnant with his son, um, and the relationship, which is really common when domestic violence is involved, became increasingly violent, um, and her partner became increasingly controlling after she became pregnant and escalated throughout the pregnancy. Um, and it, by the time this incident happened, um, he effectively had isolated Sherelle from friends and family. Um, she was very much alone in dealing with the violence um, and being a young, new mother um, trying to take care um, of her little boy. Um, they actually had broken up uh, by the time 2013 rolled around, um, but he continued to stalk and harass um, and uh, verbally threaten and physically abuse Sherelle. Um, I'm kind of skipping through things for the sake of time, but it eventually came to a head um, when there was a particularly violent incident that happened in May of 2013. Um, throughout the day, he had sent a series of 36 threatening text messages, um, including threats like, you'll see how crazy shit will get today, and DOA on site. I mean, very clearly threatening. Um, and so she was already scared by the time he arrived uh, to her home, entered through a window, um, and I won't go into too many details, but was very physically violent um, with Sherelle. Um, she managed to escape out of the home uh, to her car. He followed her into the car, and it was never clear what exactly happened after that. Um, but at, at the end of it all, Jeffrey had been pinned between the car and a cement wall, um, and Shere the car ran over Sherelle's leg. So earlier in the clip, she talks about you know having a broken leg and being in a wheelchair um, when the police tell her that they're charging her um, with murder for for this. Uh, her, you know, horrifically terrible incident. Um, so just to, again, provide a little bit more context about Sherelle and what she was speaking to. Um, so there's so many things to love and take away. Did you want Can to I just jump on? Yeah. Okay, cool, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I also, um, you know, as we're talking about these different uh, folks, I want you to, and I hope that you're using the term criminal legal system versus criminal justice system, because Sherelle just told you um, that the prosecution believed her, but they wanted a win in their books. And so that means that they need to get somebody behind bars, right? Um, Sherelle was prosecuted 11 to 1 in her favor. The prosecution could have dropped the charges, but instead they charged this person who was harmed again and kept her in prison away from her family. That's not just for anybody. That's not justice. That is just carcerality and more harm. And I'll also say, um, Sherelle might be in jail, in prison today, if it weren't for organizing. 
Um, so Holly Craig was contacted by Sherelle's mother. Holly um, is part of Moms United Against Violence and Incarceration. And then and Holly was like, what the hell? And then mobilized a bunch of other people. We jumped on that case. Many people jumped on that on Sherelle's case to create this petition because one, it's wrong, and also nobody should be in jail. Uh, but one, Sherelle, the, the idea that she was going to be prosecuted not once but twice when the prosecution was actually saying, you know what, if you just take a plea deal, it'd be absolutely fine. No. And so the organizing that was done across the country really put the pressure on the prosecution to finally drop the charges and let Sherelle out, let her live free and be back with her family. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Dina. Yeah, there, there's just, there's so many um, layers to unpack with each one of these stories. And like Santara was saying, then realizing what they reveal about systems and what systems are made for and how they actually, you know, operate. Um, so I think Sherelle makes it incredibly clear why it's important to write to survivors on the inside, right? She talks about it as, as basically saving her life, right? That knowing that there were people on the outside that knew about her, that believed her, that cared about her, that weren't forgetting about her, that were not going to let the state disappear her, um, sustained her uh, throughout the years that she spent inside. Um, and so that's the main reason, one of the main reasons why um, we do write to people um, who are incarcerated. Um, the other thing I wanna, I think the next slide, um, no, sorry, no, uh, just keep it on that one, yeah. I'm just gonna say really quickly too, um, is that to build on what Dina's point was, is that we know that prisons are designed to isolate people. Um, and so th that's their function, right? To isolate, to disappear. And so writing to people forges a connection and is an act of resisting that disappearance and isolation. Um, it also can be a way to build relationships with people on the inside. Um, so whether that leads to some type of campaign, whether that leads to a friendship, um, there can be relationship that develops through writing, or it can be a one-off note of support, right? There's a, there's a range of ways to engage in this type of activity. Um, and the other thing, and Maya is actually the person I think that impressed this upon me, um, but that mail call is somewhat of a public act in prison. Um, so if it's physical letters coming in, right, that's a public thing that happens. Um, emails are monitored, so even if folks are just getting letters or, or notes through email messaging, it signals to everyone who's working in that prison that that person has a community on the outside that is in contact, that has, is keeping eyes on them. Um, and so it can provide limited, but some sense of protection, right? Some sense of um, acknowledgement, right? That people are watching, people are paying attention. Um, so I think Maya and Sarah are going to um, hand out some letter writing materials now. Um, we have different cards um, as well as pens and we would really love it. We'll put up um, addresses in just a moment, but we would really love and appreciate um, if you would consider writing a card to Crystal and or to Bernina uh, today. Um, we'll collect them at the end and um, are excited to be able to um, show them that there is this whole room full of people at this conference um, that we're thinking about them and we're caring about them. Um, so some things to keep in mind um, when you are writing to someone inside, whether it's just today or whether this becomes a practice that you continue, um, is that all mail um, and email to and from incarcerated people is inspected by guards. 
Um, so obviously you want to refrain um, from profanity, um, refrain from including anything that be, could be considered quote-unquote incendiary, um, and uh, just trying to not ask people about their cases, like to ask them why they are there, um, because all of those things um, could then be used against them. Um, and it could prevent a card or a letter from getting through, right? If there's something that the prison deems as, um, you know, inciting a riot, that isn't going to reach that, that individual. Um, another thing to keep in mind is just the scarcity of resources that incarcerated survivors have access to, um, and then the power differential that that creates. Um, so we are in a privileged position on the outside just by virtue of being on the outside when we're writing to people, when we're engaging in this practice. Um, so just be really careful not to make commitments or any promises that you cannot keep. Right? Don't set an expectation like you're going to write to someone every week or every month if that's not something that you can do. Um, think about you know, what you are capable of and, and communicate that and stick to that. It's also a good idea to keep in mind the mixed literacy levels that exist among incarcerated people um, and all people. Um, and so to try to respond to that appropriately, not make assumptions. Um, and then also ask questions to help assess what that survivor needs and what's the most accessible way for them to receive support. Um, and so if this, you know, we're going to turn into an ongoing letter writing practice, right, or a pen pal relationship, um, that, may, that would be a really important thing to be figuring out. Um, and then also to be aware of the prison's rules for mail sent to incarcerated people. And know that even if you follow every single rule, your letter could still get returned back to you, right? So just kind of be prepared for that, um, but also to, to try to not make it easy for the prison to reject communication that you're trying to send inside. So good practice is to look on the State uh, Department of Corrections website, whatever state you know you are writing to a person in, to make sure you're adhering to uh, the very difficult rules that they often put in place. Um, and so some things to also keep in mind and what we are adhering to with the materials that we've shared today um, is we suggest using white paper, flat greeting cards or postcards. Um, so, so many cards today have like little cutouts or pop-outs or glitter or sticker, like none of that stuff is gonna get through. Um, so just really, you know, basic, basic white paper, just basic flat cards. Um, no adhesives, as I was just saying, like glue, um, can't add fun stickers, right, or anything like that to your cards. Um, as Rachel Kyder says, there is no glitter in prison, right, so don't put glitter on cards, don't use crayons, scented inks, like it's really best practice to just use black or blue ink, um, keep it as basic as possible. Um, and then in terms of thinking about how to write a message today, um, some of you may already be very well practiced and skilled in this and you're like, I'm ready to go, be quiet. Um, but if you've never done this before, it can feel a little intimidating or confusing. Um, so some things to keep in mind is that the main goal is to just send a message of love and support to Bernina and to Crystal, um, to let them know um, that they're not alone, and to let them know that they're loved, right? that people outside are thinking about them. Um, and just keep in mind all the dehumanizing messages that criminalized survivors are receiving. Right? And so anything we can do to counteract that, right? to let them know that we see them for who they are and we celebrate them for who they are. Um, and something that could be a really good way to start today is to tell them about this event. Right? Let them know you're at a conference, um, that you heard a little bit about their story today. Um, and it can be very short and sweet. Um, some of the cards we have are even just one-sided note cards to you know, try to make it even less overwhelming to actually write to someone for the first time. 
Um, and so in terms of uh, who we're focusing on today, because we talked a little bit about Kristen Bernina, we're inviting folks to write to both of them. Um, feel free to take cards with you, you know, if you only have time to do one today or even if you want to do more and then whatever you're able to write today. Um, but any cards you finish, we'll collect them at the end, like I was saying, and we will get them to Crystal and to Bernina. Um, if you want to take a photo of this slide, please do. That way you would have their addresses to continue to write to them. Um, one thing to keep in mind is when you are writing, and on the next slide we have an example of this um, as well, but when you are writing to someone inside, um, you need to include a return address on that envelope, and you need to include a name with the return address. So that could be a reason that your uh, letter would get returned to you. Even if you put an address but you didn't put a name, it can be rejected for that reason. Um, so Department of Corrections typically require that they see a from on the outside of the envelope as well as on the inside of the card or letter. Um, and so if you're not comfortable for whatever reason using your own personal address today, you can use Love and Protect's P.O. Box. We'll put that up on the next slide. Um, and I just want to note with that return address um, to include the care of uh, Sanghi Ravishandran, who's our Love and Protect member. But again, you need to include like the name on that outside of the, of the envelope. Um, and I think with that, unless there are questions, um, we're going to take just maybe eight to ten minutes um, and give everyone a chance uh, to write a card, hopefully to Bernina and to Crystal today. I'm going to put on some smooth jams, some coffee shop vibes. I would love that. Yeah. In Illinois, and well, in Crystal, it's out. Sorry. Yeah. This was a really good question about um, if the letters are, if the physical letter actually reaches the person or if it's scanned and then, you know, a, a, that image is transmitted. Um, Joey would probably know better than I. As far as I know, in Illinois, people are still getting physical mail. Um, and Crystal is out. Um, so, you know, Crystal doesn't have that um, barrier. But you're absolutely right. In other states, like I write to someone in Florida and they've adopted that system where it's anything, even if it's physical mail coming in, it's scanned, and then that person only sees the scan, which is difficult because there's something like visceral about, you know, like touching a, a physical letter, holding a card in your hand. And so that's just kind of another layer of isolation or connection that um, in some states has been taken away. Oh, sorry, yeah. Is it okay if I share another case? Uh, that yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight. Um, oh, yeah, my name is Liam. Um, also, Lil Guillotine I go by, and I use he, him pronouns. Uh, just moved to Chicago from Madison, Wisconsin. In Madison, Wisconsin, I'm in uh, Free the 350 Bail Fund, and uh, we raise money to bail people out. And um, one case that, was, that I wanted to highlight was Kenyara Gadsden. Um, Kenyara Gadsden is a mask-presenting queer a woman who was um, convicted for like manslaughter and is now doing 13 years in Wisconsin prisons, um, and we're looking to like do an appeal to try to get her to get free. Uh, she was also like the DA in Dane County uh, put a hundred thousand dollar bail on her, expecting her not to be able to raise the funds. But just around 2020, we were we had a big influx of cash and we were able to um, bail her out. 
And um, yeah, she was like being stalked by an abuser, a domestic, uh, a domestic abuser for years, and then was confronted by this uh, guy in a parking lot one night on Halloween, and uh, he ended up dead. And uh, yeah, it's just another um, case I wanted to highlight. And uh, you know, it's just another uh, example of how black women and uh, especially queer black women are not afforded the same access to self-defense as other people in society. Um, I don't know exactly what prison she's in, but um, yeah, like we're looking to raise like $40,000 for an appeal attorney. Um, so uh, uh, Freedom Inc. Is, is an organization out of Madison, Wisconsin that's kind of heading up the the struggle with that. It was interesting because uh, Jessica Williams, who is the person kind of in charge of that, got arrested at a protest they did too. And so, like the you know the state repression is really prevalent in this case. Um, but yeah, just just wanted to highlight that. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank yeah. you so much. Did you want to speak to that at all? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll spell the name too. It's a K E N Y A I double R A and the last name is G A D S O N. Thank you for bringing their case into the room and thank you for the work you're doing. Um, yeah, I don't need to talk, but I, I just want to say this that I think what you're saying too also is this really important reminder is that there there aren't really like endpoints in this work, right? And so um, you know, a case might quote unquote fail and then someone ends up incarcerated and they still need that defense committee, right? Even if the case is over, right? They still need that support for years while they're incarcerated. Um, a clemency case wins or a pre-trial organizing campaign is successful and someone is spared prison time or is released early, quote unquote early, right? Um, that support is still needed, right? And so I really just want to like acknowledge that and give respect for like that long-term commitment uh, that folks in Madison have made. It's really important. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.